Hello. Welcome back, and thank you for listening again to the History of the Congo. Episode 13, The Katanga Capture and the End of Imsiri, the Last Independent African Chief. Last time, we left the Congo at the end of 1894. Leopold's Congo Free State had successfully waged a four-year campaign against the Swahili Arab slave traders in eastern DRC, who had lived in the eastern provinces between the Lamani and the Lualuba rivers. These slave traders had grabbed the land by force and trickery, and with the aid of their modern guns they had risen to power in these lands. As a direct consequence of this, the indigenous cultures and power structures in the region, which had existed for hundreds of years, had been all but obliterated. Some writers, mostly Belgians in defence of Leopold II, point to this as a great demonstration of the force of good that Leopold assembled. Undoubtedly the peoples living under this regime had lived under the yoke of terror and slaves were often taken by force. This was a fundamental cause of conflict between the European powers and the Arabs butting up against each other in the scramble for Africa, which was now fully on. The letters of Lippens and de Bruyne Belgian ambassadors to the Arab court in Kasongo revealed that the Arabs fully intended to spread west to today's Kinshasa, then called Leopoldville. There is strong evidence allowing us to speculate the fate that awaited the peoples, not to mention the elephants, had Tipu Tip's son Seth and the slave traders realised this ambition. But there was one kingdom in the east that had survived the slave traders and the subsequent control of the Belgians thus far. There was an independent African kingdom thriving southeast of Lake Mweru, just beyond the southeastern edge of the River Congo Basin and the natural borders of the tributary rivers. This kingdom was ruled by the son of a minor chief from Rambo's kingdom, which existed east of Lake Tanganyika, which would now be in today's Tanzania. We haven't covered this kingdom as it falls outside of the DRC, but Marambo, just like Queen Nzinga of today's Angola, deserves special mention. Marambo himself was a warlord of the Unyamwezi peoples and was referred to in his time as a military genius. He held the Arabs and the Europeans, who were mostly Germans in this part of the world then, at bay to such an extent that he was nicknamed the African Napoleon due to his military victories. It appears he was able to pass his wily tricks onto one of his chief sons, the infamous Msiri. Msiri himself was born in Tabora in today's Tanzania. He was a copper trader, like his father, and was inevitably drawn to the wealthy mines in Katanga, today's southeastern province of the DRC. As is the case today, in the late 19th century, Central African copper meant wealth, only to a much greater extent. As a metal, it was more valuable than gold, as it was much harder, and therefore more useful, material. As it was a much harder, and therefore much more useful, material. Increasing its value exponentially, it was also wanted by both the Arabs and the Europeans. This meant that it could be traded for that elixir of power, guns. This had far-reaching consequences. Peoples with copper had the means to trade without resorting to the conquest and capture of people. The fabric of society was far more robust as ambitions could be met without the need for slavery. Msiri arrived in Katanga with a small cadre of men to see the chief of the Wasanga people. In his first visit in the 1850s, he arrived as a trade emissary from Marambo himself. He was delighted at what he found there. The Wasanga peoples, in control of the copper mines, were in conflict with the Luba to the north. 
Added to this joy, he found that these territories in the 1850s had not yet been exposed to guns. This gave his small party enormous power. His party had arrived with four guns, taken as support from Marambo's arsenal. With these, he was able to support the Wasanga in victory against the Luba. He thus earned the eternal gratitude of the Wasanga peoples, which eventually turned to acceptance when Msiri returned, after a brief hiatus in his home country, with an occupying force. He was not going to forego the opportunity of capturing such a wealthy region so easily. By all accounts, the elderly Wasanga chief spent the rest of his days in honourable captivity. I suspect he acquiesced at the firepower he had seen, as we have seen in other one-sided conflicts in the region. He was probably also substantially cowed by fear. There are no written records, but oral histories talk how ruthless Msiri was to all opposition after the chief's abdication of real power. He was more than willing to murder dissenting voices to protect his position of authority. Under Msiri's rule, mining became more and more important. Starting in May, the dry season heralded the start of the main copper mining period. With the demand for ivory, the elephant herds in the region had now all been substantially culled, which had removed an important food source. But the wealth the copper gave enabled Msiri's people to buy food. Foundry workers smelting the copper deposits were seen to be performing a religious task. It was an important ritual. Smelting was conducted in August in the shape of crosses, called crossettes. Small crosses were used as currency, and larger crosses were exchanged for slaves, guns, fabric, and glass beads. Katangan copper crosses from this time are still available today as collector items, although the authenticity of these needs to be investigated. Revealing his strategic prowess, Msiri shunned the trading routes to the east, knowing these to be under the influence of the Arab traders in the mid-18th century. Instead, he sent emissaries west, to the Portuguese colony of Angola. From here he managed to obtain guns and powder, and his power was further cemented when he married a Luba chief's daughter, which secured his trade routes. Over time his influence expanded to the western Luba territory, in today's Kasai province, and up to the Lunda in the north. To the east he reigned to the Lualuba River, and to the south he ruled all the way to the mountains, dividing the Congo River Basin from the Zambezi River Basin. Msiri was a ruthless conqueror. He was prone to mutilating his enemies to set an example. His boma, in Bunkeya, was ringed by two fences of thick poles, with the heads of his enemies planted at the top, in a gruesome example of power and terror. He was one of the last significant African rulers in Central Africa, but he was by no means an example of a benevolent ruler. But with all his authority and territory, he knew that other powers were rising. European explorers, be they British, German or latterly Belgians, were coming through in greater and greater numbers. He was always magnanimous with these pioneers, although he wasn't quite so naive as Tipu Tip had uncharacteristically been 20 years before. He led them, ostensibly as a benevolent guide, through the most difficult marshland and barren landscapes, so as to make his land seem inhospitable and fruitless. But this ruse wasn't to last. The mineral wealth of Katanga had been spotted. Cecil Rhodes, the British imperialist based to the south, coveted the region, as did Leopold II. Rhodes had already sent an emissary, with the usual treaty trickery, to convince Msiri to hand over his land, but Rhodes's plan was foiled by the translation of the treaty. This translation made Msiri aware that he would cede all his land to Britain. Paradoxically, he only knew this by the help of a British missionary who was already staying in the Boma. 
I'm not sure if this means that even at this time there were conflicting thoughts as to how European power should project the region. Regardless of this, Leopold II was anxious to claim this rich land for himself. Buoyed by an overlooked treaty agreement between himself and Britain, which allowed him claim over the land, he formed a company to literally go to Katanga and take Msiri's land by force. This expedition was called, appropriately enough, the Katanga Company. It was financed by the Scottish industrialist William McKinnon, and it was led by the Anglo-Canadian Captain Stairs. Other backers included the French banker Monsieur Banu Varilla and the Belgian Monsieur Lambert de Rothschild. This expedition has been documented following Stanley's adrenaline-fueled writings of 13 years earlier by the expedition's doctor, Joseph Maloney. His writings are interesting in that they give us some first-hand accounts of the region at the times, as well as a contemporary perspective on the underlying motives for the expedition and international relations. In return for taking control of the kingdom from Msiri, the company was to be given preferential rights to the lucrative Katanga mines. It also had to provide Leopold with five other items to allow claim of this income stream. Firstly, full ownership to the Congo Free State of one-third of the territory obtained. Two steamships, either on Lake Mweru or the Lualuba rivers. At least three Congo Free State stations, or forts. Provision of a police force strong enough to protect the territory, boats and forts. And lastly, a commitment to give every assistance to the suppression of the slave trade and the prevention of import of weapons to the area. So basically, owing to Leopold's flaky claim on the land, he gave permission for a self-funded gang of mercenaries to take Msiri's land and organise and develop it to such an extent that it was controlled and defensible from other powers. Leopold was also receive a third of this territory. To be honest, I'm a little sceptical about the motivations behind Point 5. It is true that the anti-slavery body was strong in Europe. It had been banned for about 60 years after all, but the ban on weapons importation would certainly have held the population impotent against any armed action, which would greatly have aided Leopold's ambitions. Maloney's book goes on to give context to the political situation. He supports Rhodes' claims to the land, in that for the Berlin Conference to be adhered to, control of the territory had to be evidenced, at least by a flag, prior to a legitimate claim. No party had yet achieved this in Msiri's land. These were not isolated discussions by politicians in Victorian smoking rooms. Even national papers such as the Morning Post wrote editorials positioning Msiri's kingdom as fair game. I'm not sure what would have happened had Msiri planted his own flag, but unlike today, the Congo was reaching full attention in the national papers of the European presses. The book does reveal an underlying position of European unity against the natives, and in particular the Arabs. The reason for this is ambiguous, but the most concerning to the Europeans seems to be that a conflict between the major powers in Africa would be disastrous for all of them. Ominously, if only they had thought this 23 years later in 1914, the devastation of Europe would have been avoided but more on that later. Peculiarly, back in the 1890s, Belgium was given a special mention as not being a major power. In essence, its claim could be overlooked as it was unlikely to give the major powers any concern. So again, by a mix of greed, fake philanthropy, and a supposedly meek position, Leopold II was able to surreptitiously claim even more territory. Now funded and organised, the Katanga Company left Zanzibar at the end of May 1891, 
and after infighting between their hired porters, they travelled through German East Africa. They passed by numerous caravans, including one with 500 men carrying about 60 tusks, or, as we would say today, the remains of 30 elephants. All of the talk was about ivory, where to get it, and how much you could sell it for. The Arabs had been displaced, but the story was the same. The peoples may not have been slaves now, but the land was still being ravaged, and the peoples were compelled into forced labour, although they were getting paid. The Katanga Company recruitment process described in Zanzibar details the scramble for these jobs and wages. People would work voluntarily for the money. The elephants, however, were still being killed in droves, whoever was in charge. In October, the company left German East Africa, and upon crossing Lake Tanganyika, reached today's DRC. Their initial landing was prohibited by the aggressive reception of 100 natives, as Maloney described them, but they soon set up camp. This was a settled area. They were one mile from the Belgian anti-slavery camp, and numerous Belgian missionaries were well established, promoting the Catholic Church, as fully approved by Leopold II. Some seven months after leaving Zanzibar, the expedition finally reached Bunkeya, Amsiri's capital. By this time, they had been passing through Amsiri's land for months, and as they got closer and closer, they saw the devastation of its harshness. After years of looting, no one had planted corn anymore, and the wild buffalo, which had been plentiful in the area, were hunted to extinction. Even the population had largely left, with years of torment and abuse leading to mass emigration. Amsiri's kingdom was no paradise. Amsiri appeared before the company, regal and imposing, and although now in his 70s, he still stood a well-built man, six foot tall. Captain Stairs spoke to him for three days, and Msiri treated him with all courteousness, as he wanted the expedition to ally with him against the Belgians, and the ever-growing alliance of tribes who wanted to stand up against his cruelty. The conversations eventually turned sour, when the expedition warned Msiri that continued insults to the English missionaries in the camp that continued insults to the English missionaries in his camp would not be tolerated. Msiri eventually got tired of Captain Stairs, and the company was dismissed. Frustrated at the lack of progress, and by the long and arduous journey, Captain Stairs aggressively entered the capital by force and raised the Belgian flag. Msiri was furious. A street battle within the hundreds of huts in the Boma ensued, and after many casualties and confusion, the expedition finally reached the central square. Such was the unpopularity of Msiri that Stairs was aided by some of Msiri's men after reassuring them that their quarry was only with the despotic ruler. Msiri himself sat with 300 warriors, all armed with guns, and two of his wives. Captain Stairs tried to convince him to sign the treaty, but at the last minute, Msiri lunged at them with a sword. His fury was beyond words as he saw his grip on the kingdom at threat, and he ground his teeth in rage. As he lunged at the Europeans, he was shot at point-blank range. Violence erupted immediately. They were in the centre of his power, and the entire Msiri inner circle rose at the outrage. A maelstrom ensued. In the melee, both Stairs and Maloney managed to escape. Running through the capital, they got lost, though, the maze of hundreds of huts providing them no directional markers or position for the exit. Panicking, and very much on the run, they were shocked to find the body of Msiri, now dead on his back. His body was surrounded by the scenes of violence he would have become so used to, although this time it was directed at him. The company's own porters had capitalised on the lack of resistance now that Msiri was dead, 
and they had become wild with loot and raped and pillaged through the boma, despite the protestations of the company's captains. One such captain, Captain Bodson, was found dying after the battle, killed by one of Mseri's favourite slaves. As recorded, among his dying words were, Doctor, I don't mind dying, now that I have killed Mseri. And to Captain Stairs, he said in a message to Europe, Thank God my death will not be in vain. I have delivered Africa from one of her most detestable tyrants. When we look at this period of history now, we should remember these lines. In the atrocities that will follow in the next episode, we should remember that history is complicated. A slave killed an Englishman who was trying to free him, and that Englishman reconciled his tragic end by his contribution to the end of the African tyranny. There were good people on all sides. And so that was that. Almost. We will meet him, Siri's grandson, in the 1960s. The desire for autonomy never left the family or the region, but that is for another time. In 1895, we find the conclusion of the Belgian Arab War and the capture of Katanga meant that Leopold's Free State was now established within today's DRC borders. On the Atlantic coast, these may have been agreed definitively by the superpowers of the day, but they split the Kingdom of the Congo apart. As we moved north, east and south, the borders were established by a sequence of skirmishes and smaller events that have rippled through history, but now the land was joined, however superficially. In today's vast country, we have met many peoples and climates, all with different histories and cultures. We have met the Bakongo of the famous Kingdom of the Congo in the west, through to the Yeki people in the north, and all the way southeast to Msiri's adopted Wasanga peoples. Added to these, the ancient kingdoms of the Luba, Lunda and Kuba, and countless others, were now all in Leopold's personal fiefdom. The great European powers of the day, settled in the surrounding lands, had acquiesced to his claims, under the guise of development, and to prevent war amongst themselves. Today's Democratic Republic of the Congo was now Leopold's, really to do with as he wished. Or so he thought. Next time, we shall see what Leopold II did and how he did this. This won't be for the faint-hearted. If you thought we had seen enough oppression, we will reach a new low, all for greed and avarice. You might want to make sure that children aren't around when you listen to the next one. But this abuse collectivised the experience of the peoples of the DRC for the first time. This is a turning page in history for the DRC. It is now a collective ruled for the first time under a Belgian's leadership, under which it would stay until 1960. This also seems a good time to draw an end to season one. Season two will certainly follow on, for sure. We haven't seen anything yet. There are many people who talk in isolation about Leopold's Congo, but what of the First World War, Paul Panda, Simon Kimbangu, and the global competition for the richest uranium mines on the planet as a new superpower rose in the 20th century? What of the surge in Congolese confidence after World War II and the diminution in Belgian and European power after this conflict? And all of this is without discussing perhaps two of the most influential Congolese of the 20th century, Patrice Lumumba and Mobutu Sissoko. I want to spend this pause writing the best podcast I can to cover this period in history. I really look forward to sharing it with you. We are also now entering the era of recorded sound, so hopefully, if I can resolve licensing issues, we can share some African jazz and Sukus music. These are the real soundtracks of the country. You never know, I might even find a charity and have some interviews. So until then, do keep in touch on my website, through my email, and safe travels. See you next time.